This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Uh, either you get very vague symptoms or a very long list of symptoms of, did you ever have a poor night's sleep or did you ever blink more than three times in a row or did you ever have dry skin or a rash or did your knee ever crack when you walked up the stairs? You know, all of this stuff. And eventually, this is what fortune tellers do, right? Eventually say, yes, that's me. I didn't sleep well three weeks ago. It must be because I have a food sensitivity. And then what they do with these tests, again, IgG is merely a marker of foods you've eaten at some point in the past. To the best of our knowledge, higher levels likely indicate foods you eat on a more regular basis. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. I am so excited for today's episode. This is a really just one of those topics that you guys have been asking about for so long. And we have the expert of experts here today, Dr. David Stukas. He is a professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University College of Medicine. And he is here today to talk about all things food allergy, food sensitivity. This is the episode you guys have been waiting for. At his institution, Dr. Sukas serves as the director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center and associate director of the Pediatric Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Training Program. And so he does so much work on an academic level on allergy, immunology, food allergy. He is an unbelievable, uh, great resource of information. I definitely am going to want you guys to follow him on Instagram at AllergyKidsDoc, which is going to be linked in the show notes. But we are so excited to have Dr. Sukas here today. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fantastic. I'm a huge fan of yours and all the great work that you're doing. And uh, it seems like we're kindred spirits in this space. So let's have at it. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I actually was thinking about like even uh, before the podcast episode, I was sending David several different posts that I couldn't wait for him to debunk. And we both were saying he literally was like, we're barely even, you know, scratching the tip of the iceberg. There is so much, so much misinformation in this space on social media. I can't even imagine. I, we could probably talk for three hours about this. We'll try to keep it under one hour. <laughs> but there's so much information. So let's first start with some of the basics terminology-wise, which even for me, as you know, when we become specialists in cardiology, you do three years of internal medicine first. So I am an internist at heart. And then you do three years of cardiology fellowship. And even for myself, the different types of food allergy versus food sensitivity versus food intolerance can get very confusing. So can you just give a breakdown of the terminology, the difference between what is a food allergy, what is a food sensitivity, what is food intolerance, and how do you evaluate for each? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And I have this conversation several times a day, every day with everybody who brings me their children concerned that they may have an allergy or intolerance. And we have to start with the basics 
and um, have to understand the very important differences between these diagnoses. Before I discuss that, I would like to state something that I, I, I found to be true is every symptom that can occur during a food allergy or intolerance or whatever can occur for unrelated reasons. Um, coincidence is not the same as causality. And we spend a lot of time trying to clarify the diagnosis. And lastly, self-diagnosis is often incorrect. Um, so there's a method to this madness, and we're going to get into that. Okay, so definitions are important. Let's start with allergy. It's super easy. An allergy is when your immune system forms a response against a food. Therefore, every single time you eat the food, no matter what form your body says, you don't belong here. The most common type of allergy we see is caused by this IgE antibody, immunoglobulin E. So those symptoms occur within a few minutes, often include some combination of big red itchy hives, you can have swelling, vomiting, wheezing, what we call anaphylaxis, which is a combination of these. People can get very sick. There can be fatal reactions to foods as well. You can have delayed onset allergies. This is just like poison ivy. You touch the leaves of a poison ivy plant, nothing happens immediately. Then 12, 24 hours later, you have you know, uh, issues. That can happen for some causes of, of food allergy as well, especially in infants with cow's milk-induced proctocolitis. They're eating a cow's milk-based formula. Sometimes a mother who's breastfeeding has cow's milk in her diet. You see some bright red blood in her diaper. So allergy is reproducible. If you're eating a food and you're not having noticeable symptoms, you are not allergic to that food. Dramatic pause. <laughs> the best test is what happens when I eat the food. There are no hidden food allergies. If you've never eaten a food, we can't really predict if you're going to react to that food. Now we have food intolerances. Intolerances involve digestion. These are not an immune response. These can come and go over time. This may vary based upon the type of food you eat or the amount of food you eat. Symptoms are often delayed and often involve some form of constipation, diarrhea, bloating. You just don't feel very well. The most common example is lactose intolerance. Lactose is a simple sugar found in dairy products. For those who can't digest it, they have some issues, you know, later that day or the day after where they don't feel very well from a GI standpoint. If they avoid those, those foods, their symptoms go away. Then we have food sensitivity. There is no consensus medical definition or diagnostic test to diagnose food sensitivity. This is a marketing term. And as we'll discuss, it is applied to a whole host of symptoms that have never been associated with any type of food allergy intolerance or anything like that. If you cast a wide enough net, eventually you're going to catch somebody that says, hey, you're talking about me. And that's where they sell all these unvalidated tests and treatment options and things like that. So let's pause there because I think that hopefully gives a good starting point for, for your audience. Phenomenal starting point. Absolutely fantastic. And so let's then deep dive into each of these individually. So starting with an actual true food allergy. So um, we'll get into the scam tests in a little bit. But for a patient with an actual food allergy, can you take us through a clinical case of how this usually presents? And then what is the actual evidence-based testing that you as an allergist offer? And so how is it diagnosed? And then what is the actual evidence-based you know, protocol or treatment options? And I know that's a very loaded question that you could probably answer for hours, but just so a general kind of sense of how this works when someone sees an allergist. Yeah, well, I, I love that. We'll, we'll speak in generalities because there are so many nuances here. And it's, you know, any I can see 100 people with peanut allergy in the same day, and they're all going to be very different in regards to right. how severely allergic they are, management, things like that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. All right, the history is the test. If you come see me, we're going to spend a lot of time going through the history. And typically, you need to have some idea of what you might be allergic to. It's pretty unusual for somebody who has a true food allergy to keep eating that food because it's going to make them sick every time they eat it. So you need to come to me with, here's the food that I ate just before symptoms occurred. 
The timing of onset is important. Typically, these IgE food allergies occur within a few minutes, rarely longer than a couple of hours later. So if you woke up the next day with hives, you have hives probably from an unrelated reason. It wasn't due to what you ate for dinner the, the day before. How long did symptoms last? It, you know, hives can occur for a bunch of reasons. If you have hives lasting five days, it's not because of something you ate on day one. Food allergy reactions are typically, you know, self-resolved or they resolve the treatment within several hours. They're not going to last 12, 24 hours for the vast majority of people. Is it reproducible? I still see people maybe every six months, they say, I'm really worried about peanut allergy. And I ask a simple question. What happens when you eat peanut butter? Oh, I eat peanut butter and jelly all, you know, every day. And I say, okay, good news. It's the same allergen. <laughs> so just confusion about, you know, the, the reproducibility. Same thing with dairy. If, you, if you're truly allergic to cow's milk, you really shouldn't be able to eat yogurt and cheese and ice cream and things like that. So we go through the history. What are the symptoms? What's the timing of onset? How many times has it happened? And then based upon that, we have IgE tests available. There's really three ways to test for food allergy. We have a skin prick test. We have a blood test where you can measure levels of IgE. And then the best test, the gold standard, is what happens when you eat it. And we do over a 1,000 oral food challenges a year at our center to help clarify the diagnosis or when people with known allergy may have developed tolerance. We, we do it in a very safe way, and we can determine whether they're still allergic. To the skin testing, we put a drop of little liquid on the back, and we gently scratch through the top part of the skin where we introduce the allergen to those allergy cells called mast cells. If those mast cells have IgE, it binds the allergy antibody. It's like a key. It unlocks it and it releases histamine. Histamine causes a hive. Within 15 minutes, the size of the hive indicates the likelihood that you are allergic. Blood testing measures levels of IgE in the blood to different allergens. The higher the level indicates the more likelihood that you are allergic. Neither skin nor blood test tell us the severity of your, of your allergy. So there's no such thing as anybody saying, oh my gosh, I have a deadly peanut allergy based upon my test. That is just this incorrect interpretation of it. Here's the catch. Skin tests and blood tests were never designed to be screening tests. So you can't just test for everything and see what comes back. There's too many false positives for a wide variety of reasons. So you have to use the history to help guide what tests you use. And then one last thing is a lot of people will say, well, I don't feel well when I ate a certain food and I have negative allergy testing. What does that mean? Well, the allergy test only tests for that IgE allergy antibody. You very well may have symptoms after eating the food. It's just not caused by IgE. So it's a very different risk. It's a very different approach to management and things like that. And then lastly, you asked about management. So the, the standard management is really identifying exactly what you're allergic to, understanding risk that's involved with various scenarios, and typically risk for reaction is highest with eating it. So we want to read labels, communicate with food handlers. You can have it in your home, be around it. The vast majority of people aren't going to have any reactions at all. Uh, a food allergy diagnosis is not nearly as restrictive as most people you know, think it is. We spend a lot of time educating uh, surrounding, you know, basically how to lower risk. And then there are treatment approaches that can desensitize people to their allergen. It rarely, if ever, actually allows them to eat their allergen whenever they want, however they want. But through very careful uh, you know, observation by an allergist, a board-certified allergist, where you actually go in every couple, of, every couple of weeks to build up your dose, and then this is a daily at-home therapy, we can reliably desensitize and raise the amount somebody would need to eat to cause a severe life-threatening reaction. You need to take it consistently for years and years and years. Again, it is rarely a cure. Well, thank you so much. That was really a nice elevator uh, spiel on the entire uh, history, symptoms, diagnosis, treatment. And that was amazing. That was actually a phenomenal overview. And so now I have specific questions for you. So super important for anyone listening that may be kind of familiar with this area, but not totally obviously, uh, you know, in 
aware of all the expertise and exactly how it works when it's evidence-based because there's so much misinformation in this space on social media. A lot of companies, and there's a lot of, unfortunately, in functional medicine specifically, there's a lot of people recommending home IgG or even, even not even home, even at their offices, IgG food sensitivity testing. So can you explain the difference between IgG food sensitivity testing and when you are evaluating food allergies and you said you are using IgE testing, which is different? Yes. Thank you for bringing this up. Have you ever taken one of these tests? Oh, no, I have not. No. Yes. Well, I have. uh, And it's fascinating. And I learned so much by taking it. So IgG is a very different type of antibody than IgE. IgE Uh, reacts against things in the world that really are harmless. Why on earth should we ever react to a peanut, a ragweed pollen, a dog dander? That's what IgE does. It's an allergic antibody. IgG is a protective antibody. It's a memory antibody. We know that when we get infected with COVID or SARS-CoV-2 or we get a vaccine, our body forms an IgG antibody. Next time we see that virus in real life, we mount a very fast response and it protects our body. It is a normal response to produce IgG to a food when you eat it. There is no reference range of what a normal value would be. Therefore, anybody who says that any value is abnormal is just making it up. Uh, And these IgG tests, they test for foods that really, it makes no sense to to try to differentiate. Uh, My test tested for cottage cheese versus mozzarella cheese versus cheddar cheese versus other, it it makes no sense because they all have cow's milk protein. Um, So... The, you know, these IgG tests really are just a reflection of what you've had in your diet at some point. That's all they're showing. And one last thing, it's really important. I mentioned that food allergy desensitization before. It is well established through all the research. As we desensitize somebody with a legitimate IgE food allergy, over time, their IgE goes down. Guess what goes up as they become less allergic? IgG. IgG. Yes. So IgG means memory. It means protection. It does not mean you have a sensitivity. Amazing. That is so helpful. Well, I want to read this for you. This was sent in by one of my uh, listeners and they sent me this website because they were having some, you know, as we discussed before, some kind of nonspecific symptoms. Sometimes they were having some rashes. Sometimes they were having some GI upset. And they uh, went to see this functional medicine who's an MD, not an allergist, but a functional medicine MD, who on their website had sent them, which this um, listener sent me, It says conventional medicine doctors will rarely test for sensitivities because research and testing behind food sensitivities are not as advanced or widely accepted as for these allergies. Many people believe elimination diets are still the gold standard for figuring out food sensitivities. They say, however, anecdotally, patients have benefited from doing testing. So they say the importance of food sensitivity testing using IgG, okay? They say even more common than food allergies, Food intolerances are estimated to affect up to 20% of the population in industrialized countries. Food sensitivities can cause delayed symptoms hours to days after ingested food that can mimic other diagnoses. IgG-mediated responses are temporary sensitivities that do not activate a histamine response and can usually be remedied with proper nutritional guidance. So what they're recommending is doing this igg sensitivity testing to see 
if there is a, as we discussed, and I'm using air quotes, if there's a food uh, insensitivity, and then to structure the individual's nutrition and diet based on this IgG testing. And I know you just explained the difference, but can you kind of go a little bit more into detail and elaborate on this exact kind of recommendation that is so, I mean, I could, I've had hundreds of these submitted. Uh, you just read to me um, a very long word salad of pseudoscience. <laughs> One, if the person who's giving you the medical advice is going to profit from a test and or service that they're selling you, that is a conflict of interest. Yep. Two, <laughs> all of these have the same exact thing in common. It's all fear mongering. I mean, according to all these sites, we're all walking around and we're ticking time bombs. If we don't find the hidden cause of whatever it is in our diet, right. my goodness, you know, life is going to be really hard. So that's out there. And then we really have to talk about the, what, why this is bad. In addition to these costing hundreds of dollars and they're not validated, we'll talk about validation in a minute, why that's important. Here's what I've seen. Um, over the last few years. If you take somebody with anxiety at any level, especially during a worldwide pandemic, which all of us have some level of stress and anxiety, and you give them a list, a long list of foods that they now need to avoid for any particular reason, that creates an eating disorder. And that's a real problem. Um, and we're seeing that more and more. Orthorexia is described as basically uh, being infatuated with your diet at all times, canceling social engagements because some so IgG tests told you you can't have black pepper for some reason. I mean, there's a real problem here. So back to sort of what you read, you know, this is the, the sort of the, the classic ploy. Uh, either you give very vague symptoms or a very long list of symptoms of, did you ever have a poor night's sleep? Or did you ever blink more than three times in a row? Or did you ever have dry skin or a rash? Or did your knee ever crack when you walked up the stairs? You know, all of this stuff. And eventually, this is what fortune tellers do, right? Eventually say, yes, that's me. I didn't sleep well three weeks ago. It must be because I have a food sensitivity. And then what they do with these tests, again, IgG is merely a marker of foods you've eaten at some point in the past. To the best of our knowledge, higher levels likely indicate foods you eat on a more regular basis. Wow. But Wait, no... I want to pause you there. I want to pause you there. It's fascinating because there's even websites that were submitted to me where they actually are literally, this is coming from websites with MDs where they are literally saying that this can help you identify hidden food allergies, you know, these functional medicine MDs. And they're, they're actually saying that they even discuss the blood levels and saying how you can have high levels of IgG that will pinpoint for you these incredibly high levels of food sensitivity. And so it's fascinating to hear you totally debunk that and explain that that actually just is a food you're eating. So for me, I'm vegan. So if I'm eating, you know, I eat tons of spinach or tons of tomato or tons of whatever. And then I go get IgG. I'm going to do this IgG testing. This is a great idea. So it's going to come up that I have incredibly high IgG levels to everything. That's, Theoretically, yeah. Yeah. And, okay. well, well, here's But here's the deal. Uh, we don't know what high is. And oh, that's very so few. I will guarantee you that nobody takes one of these tests and it comes back that says, guess what? You have zero food sensitivities. I bet that doesn't happen because you're going to find numbers, but we don't know what the numbers mean. And here's why validation is so important. Yes. We don't know what a normal reference range is based upon age, based upon, you know, anything else in relation to your hist. Every other test we do, we have reference ranges where we say this is abnormal or this is normal. The other thing with validation is there is no evidence that's ever shown that this test has been done in the same person with the same condition and you get the same results every time. These results are all over the place. And some people even market them and they say, aha. Based upon these changes, we need to alter your diet again. Therefore, we have to give you this test every three months. It's complete BS. It doesn't make any sense. And we also don't have a study that shows 
people without the disease. So what we need is we need, we would need a bunch of people with quote unquote food sensitivities, take this test, it reliably diagnoses them, but then people without food sensitivity should take the same exact test and they should have negative results. That study doesn't exist. There is no evidence to support that. So that's where all this comes back to. That's really helpful. When you do the um, allergy testing and you're actually checking for an IgE, I know you said that wasn't the gold standard, but how, how does that time course work? So IgE, you're either allergic or you're not. So if you're making IgE to something, that means your body is producing this IgE antibody. And therefore, you know, so you have the disease. Um, so now you have the disease known as food allergy. Therefore, if you eat the food, your body's going to have an allergic reaction to it. Whereas IgG, again, it's, it's just a, a memory response. It's not involved in any type of, you know, it doesn't interact with the food that we eat. Oh, gotcha. So if you are um, allergic to, say, peanuts, uh, but someone hasn't eaten, say you have a patient that knows they're allergic to peanuts and they haven't eaten peanuts in years. If you test mm. IgE at that moment, will it still be positive? Yes, if they're still allergic. Um, now, we, we follow these tests over time. So for anybody listening, if you were diagnosed with a food allergy at one point and you haven't had repeat testing, we generally do it once a year. Please talk to your allergist to find, find somebody who will repeat testing because things change over time. Especially in young children, we know the vast majority with cow's milk or egg allergy outgrow up by school age. We need to repeat testing. We look at the levels and we compare the levels over time to see if they're trending downward. Whereas some people do have very high levels that stay very high. And that just indicates that they're persistently allergic and they're less likely to develop tolerance. And so what's so fascinating about this is since Ig is telling you about the actual allergy versus IgG is just telling you about exposure. It's so fascinating to me that there is this wild multi-million dollar, you know, scam industry selling the IgG test because that obviously casts a wider net, makes you allergic to multiple things versus the IgE tests. So I'm wondering why these providers aren't just recommending the IgE tests instead. I mean, obviously, because they haven't done an immunology fellowship training, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, a couple of thoughts. One is food allergies in general are poorly understood. Uh, yeah. And I, I love I love the opportunity to speak to general pediatricians and, and folks from different backgrounds. And, and that's what I do. And that's what allergists do is we, we know how to properly interpret these tests and use them. So there's just a poor understanding. Number two, if you think about the marketing, they clearly state food sensitivity is not an allergy. So yeah. they say we don't need the allergy tests, although there are now at-home IgE tests available as well, which I don't recommend anybody does. These do not screening tests. So if IgE tests aren't screening tests. Why on earth would IgG tests be screening tests? Uh, and then there's a little bit of Dunning-Kruger. Uh, people honestly, yes. you know, it's, you know, the, those with the least knowledge have the greatest confidence and people are either taught this or they have a little bit of immunology understanding and they, they, they go from there or they read some marketing uh, that goes behind it. But there is very little evidence at all that has looked at any of this to support any of it. And you're right. It's just taken off without the evidence. So it's just, it's pure marketing at this point. Fantastic. And I know you kind of touched on this before, but can you uh, go into a little bit more detail about, I think, which is really important because we talk a lot about levels of evidence and evidence-based medicine on the podcast. We talk a lot about guidelines. We talk about what goes into making guidelines and how to um, you know, critically evaluate and appraise scientific evidence, which I do not expect my listeners to be able to do, but I just try to explain this process for why uh, we have consensus recommendations in cardiology and various other specialties. So one thing I wanted you to touch on, again, go back to is the validation of tests. Can you explain why these IgG tests aren't validated and what that means? Mm -hmm. The validation process is really important to make sure that we can trust a test. And it requires a couple of steps. One is you take people that you know they have the disease, you do this test in them, and you find a certain result. 
which should be very different than the result that you get in people who don't have the disease. So that's comparison between those who have a condition and those who do not. You should see very different results. So that's never been established for IgG food tests. The second critical part is you take the same person who has either the disease or not the disease, and you do the test repeatedly, you should get the same result consistently over time. That also has not been well established. So that's why these tests fluctuate over time. Um, so those are the key parts. And it's really easy to do, um, but it's just never been done. So for anybody who's you know attributing this, you know, this extreme precision to these tests that have never been validated, um, it, it's just absurd. It doesn't make any sense. And for those, and I agree with you, you know, we can't expect everybody out there to understand the levels of evidence. That's why we have experts doing it for everybody. Anybody listening, if you go to the Choosing Wisely website, Choosing Wisely, and type allergy, you will see number one on the list of the top 10 things that are being done wrong. Literally, number one, don't do this in allergy and allergy. One, don't order IgG tests for foods. And in the same statement, don't order a large panel of IgE tests for foods. They're not screening tests. And important to reiterate too, so you said it's not screening tests, meaning that they have to present with the symptoms. You may use it as a part of the clinical process, the IgE testing, but it's mm -hmm. not a screening test. Correct. Yeah, okay. this is where lives get ruined. And this is what I, you know, this is the sad part is you take a bunch of people that sometimes even allergists, they do a bunch of tests and just because you've seen an elevated result, I, meant, I mentioned before the high rates of false positives. You have to know how to interpret these, but we shouldn't be doing tests unless you have symptoms after eating it anyways. That's the best test. Uh, and then they're told that they're positive. And then based upon that, and, you know, we used to say, if you're allergic to peanuts, avoid all tree nuts. That's not the case anymore. There's peanuts are legumes. They grow on the ground. They're not the same as tree nuts. They don't cross react. Um, so our understanding of allergy has evolved rapidly over the last few years. And there's a lot of outdated approaches being practiced, unfortunately. Can't have an episode talking about, in quotations, I'm going to use the, the term food sensitivity, um, because as we now know, that's just not a real medical terminology. Without talking about the king of this, who is Mark Hyman, he is the father of functional medicine, and he has on numerous websites, I have pulled up um, numerous different quotations of him mentioning different way to identify uh, what he calls low-grade food allergies and food allergens. Okay, so this is the terminology he uses. And one of the things he mentions is getting a blood test, blood testing for IgG food allergens, which you've already just debunked because he says this can help you identify hidden food allergies. And we've already done that. Um, but the one thing I did want you to address is that he also recommends uh, elimination diets for people cutting out the top food allergens, which includes gluten, dairy, corn, eggs, soy, nuts, nightshades, tomatoes, bell peppers, potatoes, eggplant, citrus, and yeast for six weeks. Now, are these the most common <laughs> food allergens? And can, can you kind of comment on how, what is the evidence that supports or refutes what, what that says? Uh, another word salad of pseudoscience. And what, what, <laughs> what that statement's mixed is um, you can't say IgG tests for food allergy. I mentioned at the beginning right. the terminology difference. It's just, it's incorrect. It's, so that's, it debunks it right there. It's just completely Absolutely. incorrect. Um, when it comes to IgE food allergies, there are um, nine foods that account for more than 90% of all allergies. 
you can be allergic to pretty much anything, but most people aren't allergic to fruits and vegetables and things like that. It's pretty, pretty rare. Cow's milk, hen's egg, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, finned fish, shellfish, and sesame. Those are the top nine foods. Um, so have I diagnosed raspberry allergy? Yeah, once in my career, but they had to go through the steps to prove that they were allergic to it. And they actually developed hives after eating it in front of me. So we did the food challenge, we figured it out. Um, but for all the other stuff, what, what this is crossing over into is the, the fringe area here where people start talking about foods containing high levels of histamine and other chemicals that cause various symptoms and nightshades and stuff like that. Any symptom that can occur for a food allergy can occur for other unrelated reasons. We see tons of kids who do get contact irritant rashes on their face when they eat berries and tomatoes and cinnamon and, and bananas uh, and ranch dressing and citrus and stuff like that. But they're not allergic to it. But if they come see me, a board certified allergist, I will explain to the family why that's not dangerous. That will improve over time. We can keep that food in their diet. If you go see somebody who doesn't have that understanding, they're going to say, oh my gosh, it's because of histamine intolerance or food sensitivity or who knows what. And in addition to those foods, they're going to test for a bunch of other foods using unvalidated testing. And all of a sudden you walk out not knowing what to feed yourself or your child. It is a real problem. It is a real problem. And actually, you just thank you so much for segueing into my next question that was submitted by so many of my followers, which was the question of what is a low histamine diet? Is this pseudoscience? It's promoted by lots of functional medicine and functional nutritionists on Instagram. And as we know so far, a lot of this has been incorrect. So can you clarify the quote unquote low histamine diet? Yeah, there's, there's very little, if any evidence that supports this. And, but there's different levels here, as you know. So one is for the general population, why would you recommend that? It's, I mean, again, it goes back to just these screening tests. Who are we giving this advice to? Number two, what's the diagnosis? What are the, what's the actual diagnosis that you're making that you're recommending these specific dietary interventions? You know better than anybody. When it comes to diet, it's not one size fits all, right? right. What are we doing? What are we eliminating? Why are we eliminating? What are we looking for? And then we really have to focus on, well, what are your exact symptoms? Uh, and how are you going to know if it works, right? I mean, we need an objective measurement. If you take people who self-diagnose with having a food intolerance or sensitivity, and then they take food out of their diet, a lot of times they're going to feel better. But th these are anecdotes. And what else are we missing here? What else have you done? And the story is often along the lines of, well, I feel sluggish, so therefore I'm going to go gluten-free. I felt better after I went gluten-free. Okay, I believe you 100%. But did you also consider that gluten, oftentimes you're eating a lot of highly processed foods, and maybe you're eating less desserts or less pasta or less bread. And maybe you forgot to mention that you started exercising more or you changed your sleep hygiene or you stopped drinking as much alcohol or, you know, all these other things. So we have to be really careful about these personal accounts. And then I suppose it's probably a good place to, as any, because, um, well, one, I, I know I'm going to make a lot of people mad by this conversation. That's okay. I'm used to it. I've been doing this for 10 years online. And uh, when you when you take away somebody's beliefs and their, their what they've been told, it makes them very uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that because everything we're discussing is evidence-based. I do need to clarify one thing. There is some, an entity known as non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it's a very specific sensitivity to wheat that a very small percentage of the population has. Uh, so celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where in the presence of eating gluten in your diet, your body basically attacks itself and can cause very severe symptoms. It's very treatable by removing gluten from your diet and being diagnosed properly. There are other people that don't feel well after eating gluten. And after elimination diets and reintroduction, it, it can be determined that they have what's called a sensitivity. But this is where the pseudoscience comes in. Even though that's established for one specific food, this is where everybody takes it and they apply it to all these other foods that have no evidence at all to support that. So I just wanted to clarify. 
That is incredibly helpful. Um, Actually, a question about non-celiac gluten sensitivity, because I know there was quite some time where there was some debate whether or not there was like consensus on whether that was a true sensitivity or not. And so how do you go about diagnosing that? I had um, Austin Chang, who's gastroenterologist, talking about how to <clears throat> diagnose celiac. Is there current consensus from allergists and gastroenterologists on non-gluten, non-celiac gluten sensitivity? And you mentioned it's a very small percentage of the population. And how do you go about diagnosing that? Yeah. And for anybody listening, look, if, you, if you're eating something and you think that it's making you feel unwell, whether it's an allergy, and we can rule that out. So again, are you eating something that's causing rapid onset, hives, swelling, wheezing, vomiting, anaphylaxis every time you eat it? If not, you're probably not allergic to it. Okay. Are you having mostly gastrointestinal symptoms? Maybe it is more of an intolerance or whatever you want to call it, whether it's sensitivity or whatever. I hear you and I believe you. If you want to figure this out, then you have to find the food that you think is causing that, those symptoms. You need to identify this. Don't rely on these tests that we've talked about. That's not going to tell you what the food is. If you've identified a specific type of food or foods, take it out of your diet, but don't do it forever. Do it for about two weeks. And what we need to see, strict elimination, are your symptoms gone? If your symptoms aren't gone, it wasn't that food. If your symptoms are completely gone, eat the food again. We need to see if those symptoms come back again. That's the best way to figure this out. Trial, elimination, and reintroduction diets. It's so interesting because even I, yeah, I'm reading how non-celiac gluten sensitivity is frequently self-diagnosis, hence the true prevalence is difficult to establish. And there's currently no biomarkers or a, official way for you guys to di diagnose it, right? So it's more of like a clinical evaluation. Yeah. And there was a New England Journal um, review article maybe a decade ago that really outlined this. They had a nice chart that broke down, you know, wheat allergy versus celiac disease versus non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So um, it, it, is, it, is, is it affecting as many people as think that they have it? No. Is the gluten-free industry a billion-dollar industry? Yes. Does that influence the way people think that gluten interacts with their body? Yes. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is going back to identifying that food. You know, if I eat enough beans, they really are the magical fruits because I'm going to have a lot of gas. Uh, you know, I'm a human being. <laughs> I'm not allergic to beans. I'm not intolerant of beans. I don't have a bean sensitivity. It's fiber. That's what happens. So it goes back to what are your symptoms? What are your concerns? And, you know, what's the proper diagnosis? Yeah, Austin and I had touched on the... Uh unnecessary fear-mongering over gluten that has just become an absolute nightmare given that some of the, you know, healthiest foods, whole grains we have that is linked to, you know, we have so much data showing us that whole grains are a healthful food that can help individuals without, of course, without celiac, um, reduce risk for cardiovascular disease, cancers, and, you know, various different causes of chronic disease. And so it's a healthful food that unfortunately has been eliminated from many diets based on this fear-mongering. So important to differentiate the difference and to kind of remove that fear over, over these foods and figure out how to figure out what, what is actually uh, causing the individual symptoms. And I think it's also important that you noted too that what's so interesting is that so much of this is also based on Correlation versus causation. Did you just happen mm -hmm. to have these symptoms versus is the actual what you're eating causing the symptoms? And I think that that's why it's so important that anyone is listening sees an allergist uh, like one like you who is going to be using a combination of your clinical acumen plus the correct um, diagnostic testing combined to, to make a good evaluation. Um, and we kind of jumped to celiac, which I'm glad because that was on my list of questions I have for you, but I want to just go back quickly to the, so there has been a huge marketing 
into these low histamine diets based on nightshades, based on eliminating all of these foods? Where does that come from and why is it totally bogus? These are little nuggets of, you know, histamine is involved in, in uh, hives and itching. So therefore, if you're having hives and, you know, histamine is being released. So then you would, could, you could assume that if you're eating foods that have higher levels of histamine, that it may be causing some symptoms such as chronic hives or things like that. So it's not too far of a stretch to kind of connect those dots. But unfortunately, those dots don't often connect. If you're eating a food that has these chemicals, are you actually, you know, is it going to produce those symptoms immediately? No, we'd be seeing, you know, millions of people break out in hives immediately after eating these foods. Um, so adopting this low histamine diet, it goes back to what we talked about before of unnecessary restriction in your diet. Um, it, and thank you, Dr. Villar, for one, for having me, but for pointing out what you just said of like proper diagnosis really matters. If you're diagnosing yourself because of something you read that scared you, please, please see a professional ask their objective opinion and ask for their expert advice. If you're diagnosing something or adopting a diet because of what a friend told you or worse, some stranger on some social media group, who is that person? Why are you trusting them with your health? You know, let's, a little be, more, let's be more thoughtful about why we're doing the things that we're doing when it comes to our, our medical decision-making. So important. And so you mentioned that the gold standard is something called an oral food challenge. And so I would love for you to, you kind of covered it briefly, but I would love you for you to circle back and just Go in detail, walk us through what is an oral food challenge. It's safe and informative. And uh, what, what is a patient going to go through? If they really think that they have a food allergy, what is this oral food challenge, which is the gold standard for diagnosing food allergies? Yeah, it's really easy. You come hang out with me for about a half a day, three to four hours. Uh, and we give you, you know, we start small. We take whatever food is of concern based upon either prior symptoms, avoidance, or we know you were allergic at one point and we think you've outgrown it. And we give you a really small amount. We wait 10, 15 minutes, nothing happens, give you a little bit more. And we gradually increase until you've had about one or two servings. And if you haven't had an allergic reaction, I need to see objective evidence, meaning I walk in the room and if now you have new hives or swelling or you're coughing or your nose is running or sneezing or whatever that wasn't there before, that may be consistent with a food allergy. We see a lot of subjective symptoms. And the, the classic story is, an adolescent, say they're 15, 16 years old, they were diagnosed with peanut allergy when they were one. They've never actually eaten the food, but they've been told their whole life that they're going to die if they lick it. They have such extreme anxiety and anxiety related to food allergies is a very real phenomenon. Absolutely. We deal with this on a regular basis. Um, we have to acknowledge this and there's real harm that comes from unnecessary restriction and being told you're allergic. Uh, so that's the other piece of the, this puzzle that we need, you know, we have to consider. So you take that adolescent, they think they're going to die. And I tell them ahead of time, you're very smart. Your brain is very smart. And oftentimes we'll tell you that you're sick when you're not. And often that means that your throat will feel funny. You'll feel a little scratchy or your belly might feel a little upset. Those are all normal responses to being this very unusual experience. We, if you, that happens, you let me know. We can often feed through it and its symptoms go away. But there's a lot of people out there that have those same subjective symptoms out in the real world. And all of a sudden they think that they're reacting to new foods or that, you know, now that's no longer safe for them to go to a certain restaurant that they were at before. So food challenges are simply the best part of my job. Uh, when, when people have outgrown their food allergy or developed tolerance, it's, it's a new life. And, you know, welcome to your new identity. You no longer have to avoid this food. If people are avoiding a long, a long list of foods based upon inappropriate testing or understanding, we can open things up for them. And even if reactions do occur, um, it's informative uh, because now everybody says, oh, that's how much I needed to eat. And those with the symptoms, I got this. Uh, there's a lot of what ifs that happen in the, in the food allergy world of what if 
um, you know, somebody at lunch ate peanut butter and they have it on their hands. They touch the playground equipment. The my child goes by and touches the equipment and then they put it in their mouth. What's going to happen to them? I can show you what's going to happen to them. More often than not, nothing from that type of exposure. So let's, you know, we can use these as a very safe, informative way to address anxiety and to really, um, you know, uh, offer guidance for management. That's so helpful. And that is really interesting, especially because I think a huge component of it that has to be emphasized, as you mentioned, is the uh, anxiety, the psychological component of it, because it is scary. You think of food allergy and you think of anaphylaxis, you think of not being able to breathe. And that is frightening, especially for children. And so that is a wonderful way to not only evaluate the actual uh, level of the individual's clinical symptoms for the allergy, but also to help provide some reassurance and some and some guidance, some structured guidance. That's fantastic. And one thing I wanted to touch on and see if you've seen this as well. I know you mentioned that um, avoiding, you know, one of the dangers of these inaccurate non-validated food testings and, and basically saying everyone has this food sensitivity to X, Y, or Z is people are eliminating foods that are perfectly healthy for them. One of the other uh, unfortunate side effects I see of this in my practice, because I work with two gastroenterologists who see this all the time, is mm-hmm. that people are diagnosed with a quote-unquote food sensitivity, which I already know isn't a real terminology, um, through these different tests because it's a catch-all for gastrointestinal symptoms, you know, bloating, some stomach upset, some things that are um, giving them some GI symptoms. And in the meantime, they're avoiding X, Y, or Z foods, but they actually are delaying a diagnosis of an actual underlying GI disease, which my partners in my practice see frequently. So someone who may have a true IBS, or they may actually have an IBD like Crohn's, you know, and so there's a delay in diagnosis because instead of getting a diagnosis of the actual underlying etiology of a gastrointestinal disease, they're thinking they're falsely being misled to believe that they have a food sensitivity. Absolutely. We see it all the time. Um, one thing um, I like to tell to, to families is based upon today's evaluation and my understanding of these things, it's less likely that a specific food or foods is the cause of your symptoms. And it's more likely that this is something inside your body, which can be affected not only by the food you eat. So yeah, uh, here's the example I use. If I eat a dozen buffalo wings, my reflux kicks in. Uh, If I eat one buffalo wing, I'm fine. I'm not allergic to buffalo wings. I'm not intolerant. I don't have sensitivity. It's because I have reflux and I eat a spicy food and it makes it worse. Um, So the same thing can happen with anybody who has anything from Crohn's disease to irritable bowel syndrome to reflux to whatever whatever it may be. Um, So trying to figure out, is it a specific food or is it actually some other condition? And if you focus on these specific foods, you know, a lot of times, no matter what you eat, you're going to have these symptoms Um, or they're going to kind of come and go over time or we correlate foods with, you know, as as opposed to causation. But then you do these tests and you, you undergo these elimination diets. It can delay the diagnosis by weeks to months, which is a real problem because oftentimes the sooner we diagnose it and the sooner we treat it, the better the outcomes can be. Being in California, where we see lots of these, unfortunately, you know, home IgG testing done, my uh, colleagues have seen, sadly, a lot of delay in diagnosis, which to me is one of the harms of the scams. Isn't just the wasted money, and which is, of course, that's a huge problem. And it isn't just the avoiding foods that are healthy, which in itself is of a huge problem. To me, one of the biggest problems is actually missing out on an underlying diagnosis. Because I always tell people listening that even if the diagnosis is fake, right? So even if food sensitivity is maybe, you know, um, as a general term is not a, and using IgG testing isn't real, their symptoms are real. So what they're feeling is real, just because the diagnosis may be, you know, not 
correct doesn't mean that their symptoms aren't real. So if there is something going on, being evaluated by an evidence-based provider is so important because their symptoms are real. There could be something else going on that has absolutely nothing to do with this, uh, like you discussed, the IgG testing. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of time and we have to listen. And here's, you know, you and I both know, unfortunately, not all doctors, we, we can all have the same qualifications, but not all of us have the same bedside manner, the same right. um, you know level of understanding of these things or, or have to take the same time with these patients. So people can have really bad experiences. So I don't, I don't fault them. I never fault anybody right. for seeking, you know, alternative care or, 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 you know, any, any help because they're, they're in pain. I'm, I'm, I want them to feel better. What I do fault is those who take advantage of them. Um, you know, snake oil has been sold for you know, hundreds of years. This is just the modern day version of it. And, you know, it, it's not okay because uh, they're being taken advantage of and they're victims here. Absolutely. They are the victims. And one of the other ways in which I'm not sure if you've seen this as much all over social media, you probably have, but one of the other ways in which this kind of made up food sensitivity sort of has pervaded the nutrition space is it's been claimed to be an underlying cause of individuals gaining weight. Have you seen this as well? Yeah. It, I mean, it's the flavor of the week, you know, just like the blood type diet, right? Um, exactly. or the horoscope. You might, as well, you might as well pick a diet based upon your, the horoscope or where the moon is or whatever. It's all yeah, it's all just fear mongering, casting a wide net. So whether it's, you know, inability to lose weight or gain weight or uh, fatigue or, you know, whatever it is, it, you're, you're, you're going to hit somebody uh, right where it hurts for them if you cast these wide nets and you apply all these different things that don't apply to it. And, you know, will people lose weight if they, you know, uh, eat less, uh, you know, processed foods and, and things like that? Sure. Uh, but there's more to it than that. You also, have, you know, it, that's a whole complex issue. And the other thing too, which drives me crazy, and you may relate is just telling somebody like, oh, well, just don't eat this. Therefore you won't be you know, overweight. Oh my gosh. That's, that's such a disservice to that person. Absolutely. It's way more than that. I always say on my podcast, you can spot pseudoscience when someone's discussing mechanisms, but not outcomes. There's no outcome data mm -hmm. for it, but there's plenty of sexy mechanisms. And boy, do they have those down when it comes to food sensitivity. Oh yeah. Inflammation is the scary term I, I hear all the time as well, but you know, it, it's a scary word. I don't want inflammation in my body. And if I'm told that it's because I'm eating broccoli or whatever, okay, I can avoid it. Um, but the other piece of this puzzle too, is the guilt. Oh my gosh. If you tell somebody your the choices you're making based upon the food you're putting in your body are causing hidden inflammation. And that's the reason why you're, you know, having trouble losing weight. Here's a long list of foods you need to avoid. And then invariably when they can't avoid them, because it's ridiculous to try to do so on a, on a regular diet, uh, in a regular budget, they feel guilt. Oh, I slipped today. That must be why, you know, that's, that's why I gained a pound this week. I put a little black pepper on my salad. No, oh naughty me. Yeah. It's a real, it's just, oh. Unbelievable. I actually hadn't heard about the black pepper, quote unquote, food sensitivity yet. So that's a new one to me. But um, hey, pick a pick a food. You can be sensitive to it. Unbe unbelievable. Yes. So how does someone go about so anyone listening who says, oh, my goodness, they're feeling awful right now because they've done the whole bout of home IgG tests and they've seen a functional provider and they've, uh, you know, they've spent thousands of dollars to figure this out. And they're listening to this and they're like, oh my goodness, I've been scammed, which by the way, I know that Dave probably feels the exact same way as I do is that our heart goes out to you. It's not your fault. If you've been scammed, it is 100% not your fault. It literally can happen to anyone. Pseudoscience is that tricky to navigate. 
But how do they go about finding a provider like yourself? What are some foolproof ways? And then also, you mentioned choosing wisely. What are some foolproof resources in addition to finding a provider that can help them get an accurate diagnosis? Yeah, um, vetted resources. There's professional organizations for allergy and immunology. There's the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the European Allergy Societies, the Canadian Allergy Societies. Um, you know, they're out there. They're easy to find. Uh, the same goes with all the gastroenterology, you know, gastroenterology societies. So start with vetted resources. And, you know, there, there are libraries of information available. There's videos, there's, you know, social media presence. There's, that's the reliable information because it's from the experts. And then you want to see an expert. Board certification matters. Dr. Bellardo and I went through the extensive training. And that means that we, you know, people say, I took a weekend course and I have a certificate. That is not board certification. <laughs> we, we've gone through actual, you know, you have our medical degrees. We've gone through the residency training. And the reason why that's important is because we've demonstrated some level of proficiency and expertise on the field that we practice medicine in. Uh, that's really important. Uh, and, you know, you have to find somebody, hopefully a board certified allergist, immunologist or gastroenterologist uh, that can meet with you and discuss all these things. I do have to go back to what I said a few minutes ago. Not everybody has the same level of, of understanding or expertise when it comes to this. So it can be really frustrating. Uh, I get that. Uh, in general, um, you know, you can either go word of mouth. Uh, I, you know, if you know somebody with similar issues, they went and got it clarified with somebody, go see them, talk to your primary care provider, uh, see if they have any recommendations about people they trust. Uh, academic centers tend to have folks that, you know, can spend a lot of time <laughs> with very complex patients. Uh, so there's, there's ways to get help. So what are your biggest red flags for anyone listening? What are some red flags that if they spot on social media that they should say, okay, I shouldn't be worried about this account? Or what are some of the biggest red flags in the allergy, food allergy space that people should know to avoid that there's probably some pseudoscience behind it? If you read a post, whether it's from a person or an organization or a company or a practice or whatever, and it makes you feel anxious, run the other direction. They shouldn't, you know, nobody should be out there causing fear mongering. Uh, if you read something where at the end of it, they're trying to sell you their products or services, don't give them your money, run the other direction. The, the way I love, you know, I've been involved in social media for a decade and I got out here because of all the misinformation. And here's what I love. I love when somebody reads something I post and they say, thank you. Uh, interesting. I'm going to go to my own doctor and I'm going to have a conversation with them whether or not this pertains to my own health. That is a healthy relationship with social media not diagnosing oneself, not asking others for specific advice. Uh, I don't know about you, but I get direct messages all the time where people ask me to give them specific advice. They send me lab results. They send me pictures of rashes. Please right. don't send me a picture of your rash. I'm not your doctor. Even if I am your doctor, I can't give you specific medical advice on social media. So if somebody else does, they don't know what they're doing or they're violating HIPAA or their Hippocratic Oath or whatever it may be. Like they shouldn't be giving you specific advice. So there's a couple of things to, to kind of think through, but always go back to your own, own doctor and, and ask them if you have any concerns about your health. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything specific you think high yield that we've missed? Yeah, there are folks out there listening that are saying, oh, thank goodness they didn't talk about uh, MRT testing or applied kinesiology or hair analysis, because all of these are unvalidated tests as well. That's right. We, <laughs> so we cannot miss this muscle. There's a muscle test here too. I haven't heard of these. Can you give us a little overview on that? All right. Everything we talked about with IgG tests, same rules apply. None of these are validated tests, which is extremely important. None of these have ever been accurately shown to diagnose. One's anything. a muscle test. So a muscle test is 
Dr. Bellardo, hi. Uh, I haven't been sleeping well. And you say, well, it's probably because of a food sensitivity or intolerance. Um, let me test the strength in your arm. Okay, now hold this vial of milk. Let me test your strength again. Ooh, you're weaker. Therefore, you are you have a sensitivity or intolerance. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You see the shock on my face right now. Yeah, so there's no, simply no biologic plausibility to that whatsoever. Absolutely not. I mean, that is like that is like literally like using the horoscope to decide what you're allergic to. Okay. But it makes sense, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, I do feel weaker now. You're right. Okay. And then what comes from that? Well, now I'm going to sell you my uh, very detailed you know, subscription diet plan and you have to come back every three months and I'll repeat testing and all this other stuff. Wow. Unbelievable. Okay. And then there's hair analysis too. Right. So here's where it gets really interesting because we know that we can diagnose heavy metal toxicity by looking at somebody's hair, right? So lead poisoning, things like that. You take those concepts and it's not that far of a fetch to say, well, if I can diagnose heavy metal toxicity looking at hair, why can't I diagnose food sensitivity? Well, you can't. Uh, it's, it's not validated, not evidence-based. Uh, so they take these similar principles, but they apply it to a, separate, a completely different sort of cause, uh, allergen and condition. But that, you know, People, I've seen these readouts. They are pages long uh, and it's unbelievable. Thank you so much for clarifying. And please let everyone listening know where they can find you on social media and where they can follow your work. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So I'm my handle is at Allergy Kids Doc on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, And you'll see that I try my best just to put out evidence based information. I, I do have some really bad dad jokes that I spent, I send out every week on Twitter, uh, every Friday, four o'clock Eastern time and every Friday for 10, for 10 years straight. And I have probably only repeated a couple of them, which means the jokes are really bad these days. <laughs> well, you're going to have to close with one. Leave it. You give us your, give us your, we want your best right now. Oh, geez. All right. Um, I know. The, the pressure's on. I didn't warn him about this. No, 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 no. We're, we're ready. Are you ready? Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Why can't you hear a pterodactyl going to the bathroom? Why? Because it's P is silent. Oh my God. That is so good. <laughs> I do. I actually love those kind of jokes. Those are pretty good. Okay. Well, fantastic. I have one for you. Two olives are sitting on a table. One olive falls off. The other olive uh, looks at the other one and says, are you okay? And he goes, olive. <laughs> That's <too> bad. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. Okay. That's that's one of my favorites. I appreciate this kind of humor. Okay. Well, thank you so much for teaching a cardiologist immunology, for giving all of our listeners a great way to sort through the nonsense on social media. And thanks for all the work you do. And everyone listening, you have to go follow Dave. I learned so much from his account and he's just going to keep bringing the evidence-based information out there. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.